This is uh, Sheep Stuff You Should Know with Dan Macon up here in Auburn, California. And Ryan Mahoney down in Rio Vista, California. And, in the uh, burning hot Solano County today. It's the end of May and it feels more like July here in Auburn. It's, it's really hot. How hot yeah, is it down no, there? No delta breeze down here. It, was, it, it peaked at 104 yesterday and we should beat that today. It was... It was about 90 degrees at 10 o'clock this morning, so it's going to get up to 105 to 107, somewhere in there, I think. Uh, yeah, but it's supposed to cool off and then rain on Monday, which is not typical. <laughs> no, no, and, and these big swings in temperature are rough on people and rough on livestock, it seems like. Big time. Really yeah, rough. I think one of my favorite stats, statistics, um, is one of our local cities, city of Vacaville, they had the last hundred years of rainfall every year, and it rained within an inch of average 3% of the last hundred years. <laughs> so you only have a 3% chance of having an average year. Yeah. You're either going to be way above or way below. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. So that was funny. So you only hit average 3% of the time. So what do you guys do when it's this hot work-wise, Ryan? Yeah, so uh, number one thing is don't work the livestock in the heat. That's a recipe for, for hurting animals. There's obviously if you're moving things or you're trucking animals or something like that, you're going to need to do a little something, but you really key into the stress and you make sure you release them, uh, you know, release them into good pasture or good situation and accessibility to water. Uh, it's very important to be conscious of the accessibility to water and then probably have a little salt available um, on days like this. You could potentially, if they pull off a of water for too long and then they go and gorge themselves, you could run into salt poisoning. I've seen that one time in my career and it was the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. But yeah, we try not to handle them. Um, as far as our employees, we switch to our high heat procedures once it hits into 95 which is basically we'll shift the hours. So we'll, typical day will be six to four. We'll change that day and go five to one with a lunch break at about 10. And um, that allows everybody to get the work done in the mornings. Um, it is tough on anybody to wake up that early, but you know, heck it's nice to have that long afternoon and, and uh, you're able to spend it in a cool area rather than being out working anything. And you don't get much done on these hot days. So what about you guys? No, that's, I that's not getting much done on these hot days. It's a, <laughs> it's definitely an issue here. We, we also start earlier. Um, and we're real careful about working livestock in the heat of the day. You know, if we're having to do something where we're working in the corrals or, or doing any kind of movement, we'll do that really, really early. And it's, it's in our case, both, an issue for the livestock and for the dogs that we use. You know, we use dogs quite a bit. And um, I've had border collies that if I didn't make them quit and go get in a water trough somewhere, they'd kill themselves working in the heat. So pretty cognizant of that this time of year too. We had an issue, speaking of water, oh, this has probably been 10 years or so ago. We had uh, some temporary water systems using black pipe to get water to the troughs. And that'll keep animals from drinking in a hurry when that water's, you know, 180, 190 degrees and steaming, it seems like, even on Yeah, that's one other thing we do um, 
in uh, where, wherever we kind of can practically, but in our feedlot, we have um, sprinkler nozzles on the tops of the water troughs. And when it gets these hot days, we take them and crank them all the way up. And that just keeps a continuous flow of water. The, the sprinklers are there to keep that flow of water. And then also kind of the, some of these mountain sheep that we'll get in have never seen a water trough. So they hear the sound of the water and they'll come to it. That's the main reason why we have it. But then on these hot days, we have it for that circulation to keep that water cool. That really, really helps. And so if you have an area where you're always watering livestock, yeah. it's a good idea to maybe take a little sprinkler and stick it over the top of the water and shoot it in as long as you have an overflow recycling system. I, you know, it'd be great um, if you could send a picture of that system sometime. I'd love to see it. Or maybe I'll Yeah, sure. That. It's as cool. simple as just a, you have your float valve and it, instead of going into an elbow, it's into a T. Yeah. And then goes up and elbows straight across galvanized with a sprinkler head that it, it emits straight down. It does not a broadcast. Oh, okay. one it shoots okay. straight down. Kind of like a spray nozzle for a, a like a spray rig or a oh, sure. spray type thing. Sure. So it's kind of like that. I think well, we buy cool. ours from Ace Hardware. We have to special order them because they don't stock them. But we special order by 50 every two years. I wonder if we could rig something like that on portable troughs. Um, that we're moving around. You could. The key, the key is, is the flow. So if you leave it on, it'll overflow the trough. And so our water trough on the, on the back and the opposite side, we have, a, we have our drain, but in the place of a drain, we have a galvanized pipe that's threaded in, but it's cut at the level we want the trough to be at. So, oh, okay. and, then, and then we attach a black, like a drain pipe to it and then that, that water actually goes into our irrigation water system. So it's all fresh water pumped in, drizzled into the water trough, and then what spills out of the water trough goes and then gets put on the field as irrigation water. And so the key is having the where the water is going. <laughs> like right. If you leave it on, it'll just overflow and make a mud hole. Make a mud, make a mud pit. Yeah, but that does help, especially in the hot days. I'll have to, I, I would love to see a, a picture of it and kind of wrap my head around how we might do something like that here. Cause I, that is sure. something I worry about this time of year. Yeah. Either that or grab your face mask and head on down to Dixon and I'll show you. That sounds like a plan. I think maybe we should tape one of these face to face here. One of these days. Yeah. One of these days. I'll, we'll actually have to put together a studio of some sort. I, <laughs> <laughs> the B, the, the C level production we got is going to have to get upgraded. <laughs> So. Uh, so I think it was your your turn to pick the topic this week, right? Yeah. So I pondered and thought, and I wondered what to ask you, and then I decided that uh, we've covered a lot of really good broad subjects, and so the last one or one of the last broad subjects that I think we have is um, kind of animal health, and, and more specifically, uh, kind of how you handle and make a plan for animal health. Uh, and when I talk about that, is sheep are a small species, but they're a historically large-scale commercial commodity. Mm -hmm. But as they've shrunk, we've lost access to a lot of medicines, and and um, and it's simply because of volume sales into the sheep industry can't justify FDA licensing for sheep. Right. So that right. has created a situation where if you just get into the sheep business, it's really hard to find access and advice and prescriptions for a lot of these drugs and how to really use them. 
And uh, so I thought that was a really good subject to maybe dive into today. And so the first question I had for you is, um, what are some of the challenges we face in the U.S. regarding access to medicines for sheep? And You know, I think in my experience, there's, um, it's kind of a multifaceted problem. You, you hit on it just now. I think one of the issues is we're, we're kind of like some of the minor crops in California in terms of um, herbicides or, or pesticide products. You know, it's, it's tough when there's not a high, a high economic demand for a particular crop necessarily to, to get companies to justify the research and development investment that's necessary. And, and just invest in approval of, of vaccines. So I think that's, that's an element we face in, in the U.S. generally. I think the other issue, and it's kind of, to me, kind of a chicken or an egg question to some extent, is veterinarians that are willing to work on small ruminants and that understand kind of a herd health type of, of system in small ruminants. You know, I think the other issue is the lack of vets that'll work on small ruminants. And I think to some extent, it's partly related to economics. You know, my, my wife graduated from the vet school at Davis in 1994. And at that time, I would say about 10% of her class had any interest in food animal medicine. Almost everybody was interested in doing small animal because that's where the money was. And so I think that's part of the issue too, is that we, we're not producing vets, um, vet students that are, are really focused on the industry. And I think that's a, something we've, we probably need to address as an industry as well. And I think that drives some of the investment in animal health products and, and animal health knowledge to some extent as well. What, what's your perspective on that? I know you've done some international traveling and, and maybe have a little different take on where we're, we're falling short. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, as I traveled, I, I realized how fortunate uh, I am, how blessed I am to be where we're at and have Mill Station Vet Clinic right next to us. Um, we have a really good vet. He's dedicated to the sheep industry. He loves the commercial side of it, along with he helps with a lot of the fair projects and small animals and, or small um, flocks and things too. But to have that kind of a resource, um, I was shocked as I travel how how rare that is, um, especially to have the breadth of commercial experience in the sheep. Um, there are some out there, but they're very busy and they're they're hard to find, um, and typically they're very far away. And so that that kind of is one of to me one of the most important questions is if you're a starting sheep rancher, how do you go and find a vet? You know, I, I'm, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask because I found mine um, in college and married her. That's one way. That's a good way. <laughs> I don't know that that's um, universally repeatable. I think, um, you know, thinking about here in the foothills, there are thankfully still a handful of, of large animal sole practitioners here in the foothills that kind of have to be Jack or Jill of all trade. They'll work on horses and alpacas and pygmy goats, but they'll also still do some kind of herd health work with commercial producers. I think 
um, seeking those folks out, it becomes very clear when you call a horse vet that uh, they don't know how to work on sheep if all they do is horse work. But at least up here in the foothills, the horse vets know who to refer those kinds of, of questions to. So I think I'd probably, if I didn't know where to start, I'd, I'd start looking up large animal vets in my local community and, and just seeing who was out there. Um, you guys are so lucky down there to have, have the guy you're working with. Um, I think you're in a real, as you said, in a really unusual situation. How did you come across him? Did he seek you out? Uh, no, he's like five miles down the road. <laughs> and he, um, I mean, we, we used to, we had another vet who's a historically good sheep vet that we worked with and he's, he's gotten older over the years and he's transitioned to dogs and cats. And so as he transitioned into dogs and cats, um, the vet we use, he started in and, um, began to grow his practice um pretty rapidly he um and he also he's he's always been involved in the sheep somehow he used to work at superior farms in the receiving corrals and um, then kind of worked as that's kind of what paid for a lot of the work through vet school was that that yeah. job at superior and so and then when he graduated from davis he went to work um in a lot of dairies and then he's worked his way back into kind of sheep and, and cattle side. And so he's a real true large animal vet and he's young. He's, you know, he's only 40 something years old. I think. So, so it, it, we're really fortunate to have him here. And that's one thing I didn't realize how fortunate we are to have that guy. And so to me, if you're starting out and you're in the middle of the U S and you don't know where to go, I, I, I would struggle to figure out where to start. And I think you made a good point is to maybe call some local large animal vets and start asking for referrals. Because uh, that, yeah, that probably would make the most sense to. You know, to I, and I think, I think that relationship is a two way street between a producer and a, and a vet, regardless of the scale. If you're, if you're operating a commercial sheep operation, even if it's small like ours, um, Having a vet that understands it's a commercial business, that that there is an economic element to all these things that we're doing, I think is really valuable. Um, a, a rancher who was actually president of the California Cattlemen's Association when my wife was in vet school told her, I think in her junior year, that if you want to work with commercial producers, you need to understand their economics too. And you need to understand kind of where they are in terms of what the market looks like. You know, we're not sacrificing animal health by any stretch, but there's a lot of things that somebody with a pet dog would pay a vet to do, which if we're in the commercial livestock business, we need to know how to do ourselves. And I think a good vet that understands that can help teach us how to do some of those things that we can do ourselves. I think that's a really important element of that relationship too. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that like, if I look at our relationship with our vet, it's probably 10% field work, probably 40% um, developing kind of systems and protocols and then 50% yep. education. Yep. to teach us how to do things and it's advice on how to, it's ed, the, the education side of it is how our relationship with our vet looks. Uh, I would say that's, that's pretty true in our business too. Even, even though I come home and see my vet every night, 
I mean, that, I would say that holds true, that, that help developing those systems is a really important part of that relationship, whether it's a vaccination program or kind of just a general health observation program. Um, Sammy knows that if I call her and need her to come out, it's probably something pretty serious. Um, you know, it's a, it's a uterine prolapse that I can't fix or um, something like that. But just about everything else, it's education and consultation. And it, it's, I think that holds true with you guys, it sounds like, too. Yeah, pretty much, definitely. Um, what about, um, what are some of the reasons why um, this relationship is important? I, I think, you know, the, the formal term for that is the veterinary client-patient relationship, which is, is a little, uh, that's why I think vet, vet school is probably harder than medical school, because you, you have a third element to that relationship. So you've not only got to deal with the client, if you're a vet, but you got to deal with a patient that probably can't communicate with you. Um, and so I think just in terms of how I, I view the work that my wife had to go through in vet school, I think it's much harder. But that relationship is important for a couple of reasons. I think in our operation, generally it's important because my vet understands the diseases that we're likely to see in our part of the state um, <clears throat> and is also um, understands kind of our skill and knowledge level in terms of our own sheep. And so that relationship allows her to, to give us very operational specific recommendations, number one. There's a legal reason that that's important now in California, and I, I suspect it will be important all over the U.S. before too long, and that's that we have to have that relationship in place now in California to be able to get a prescription for an antibiotic. So I can't just call a vet who's never met me and never seen my sheep and say, I need LA 200 to give my sheep if that vet hasn't ever seen my sheep or understands my operation. And so I think even, even though we may not use a vet to do those types of, of diagnoses and treatments on a day-to-day -day basis, that relationship is important for her to know. I understand what pneumonia looks like versus what foot rot looks like. And I know how to safely give an antibiotic treatment if one is called for. What, how, how do you go about building that relationship in a, a formal sense, Ryan? Um, so there's two layers. There's the veterinary feed directive for the nation, which applies to any kind of antibiotics in feed. So mixed into feed. So, if, and you need a vet client relationship for that. And then California also puts the, has, has more rules and has the uh, injectable antibiotics tied with that. Um, for us, we have a, we have a formal relationship that we document, put on paper. We have a script, um, for the antibiotics, we have scripts for all the antibiotics and um, protocols that are in place in our feed. If we're going to do any kind of mass treatment or feed in the in the feedlot, we um, we document it. He signs off, and um, and we we go ahead and do the medication. He doesn't do the administration, but he does the oversight of what we're doing and make sure it's good. Because when you create the vet client relationship, that vet is taking on liability that you as a producer 
need to be responsible and need to, he needs to trust and know that you are going to dose within the recommendation. You're not going to go and be negligent and overdose, or you're not going to send something to town before it's been through the proper withdrawals, or you're going to not store the medicines properly. Um, because when he signs off that says, I'm having this relationship with this producer, he's taking on the liability that you're going to be a responsible producer. And so it's really important to be conscientious of that um, at the risk that that vet is taking by um, signing off on what you're doing. And so if you look at it as I just need a signature so I can get my LA 200 for this one six sheet, that doesn't right. work. You need to develop the relationship and you do that by calling them up, talking to them, having them come out, see the animals, being present when he's seeing the animals, having a conversation, him or her. There's a lot of, yep. a lot of the top vets in the nation are, are female vets. Um, yep. And so, but you have to have that relationship and that takes time. But then me, I've always looked at it as an opportunity to learn. Most of us haven't gone to vet school that aren't vets. And so the education resources that they have are just tremendous compared to what we have access to. So use them, use them like an encyclopedia or a, or a guidebook, a field guidebook or something like that. And that's how you build that. And I, I'm curious if you guys do this. One of the other things that I do with my vet, but with, with other vets, you know, I've worked some with, with the new vet specialist at Davis as well on some of these things. You get an unusual situation that arises. We had an issue during lambing that was really puzzling to me this year and having that relationship established also meant that I could call the vet or text the vet and say I'm seeing these kinds of things what am I missing here what would you be concerned about in these symptoms that that I'm describing to you and I think that's part of that informal relationship that's really valuable as well so just to get to the the liability part um, this may be really, really simple, but I think it, when, we, when I teach a, a class of new producers, I always ask this question. What are the things that you do when, you're, when you um, are looking at a bottle of LA-200? What are the things that, that you need to be worried about that are on that bottle that are, are required of you as a producer? Dosage and withdrawal. And route of administration, right? Yeah, and the way you administer it, yeah. 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 Subcutaneous or intermuscular. Yeah. Or drench. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, that, I think to those of us that do it all the time is we don't even give that a second thought anymore, but I think that's an important thing for new producers to kind of wrap their heads around that there's some really specific guidelines for how to use those things. Yep. And, and if you have a relationship, the vet, vet will provide all of the tools, but like they have different sized needles to do IM or intermuscular versus yep. um, sub Q and just knowing this, where to do the injection side, all those kind of things. But that's, you know, that's how you build that relationship. And don't ever be afraid of asking a, you know, what you think might be a dumb question because that vet wants you to ask dumb questions. So they have confidence knowing that you're not going to make those mistakes. Um, because yep. it's a dumb mistake that gets antibiotics, um, you know, that gets a positive tested antibiotic in the meat plant or something like that, yep. which they do test and those animals do get thrown out. So that meat does not enter the food chain. That's the reason we have the USDA inspection service. Yep. So uh, just because you give antibiotics to your animals 
they do do residual testing in the meats in those plants. And so you shouldn't have any fear of, as a consumer that there'll be antibiotic levels in the meat. Exactly. Um, so the next question, we kind of jumped into antibiotics, but what's an important antibiotic that you couldn't do without and uh, any that you wish you had that aren't on the market or can't use? It's a good question. And I, I gave some thought to this and uh, you, you probably have a more thorough answer to this question than I do. Um, we use LA 200 quite a bit. I'm not, I mean, not, that's our go-to antibiotic if we've got, got an issue. And we'll use LA 200 to treat um, respiratory infections. That's probably our primary issue. Sometimes we'll have um, like an infected eye from a foreign body, you know, kind of a pink eye type situation from stickers or something like that, that we'll use LA 200 in. Knock on wood, we haven't had a big issue with foot rot um, for probably five years. Um, and we'll talk about vaccine here in a, in a second, I think. But uh, if we had a, a severe case of foot rot infection, we would use it in that case as well. Sammy has some um, higher powered antibiotics that, that we'll use on occasion. Um, I typically don't keep those on hand, primarily because I can go ask her if, if there's something we need. Some of those have a little shorter withdrawal time too, which can be helpful. We've also used, we will use penicillin in lambs if we've got joint ill or navel ill or something like that, where we know we can catch them and retreat, um, unlike LA-200. What, what are the go-to antibiotics for you? What, what can't you live without? Um, yeah, we, we um, I, I'd say the oxytetracycline is kind of the general all-purpose uh, one. We've drifted away from that uh, a bit in recent years um, in favor of, there's one, one of the higher powered antibiotics that we use with the script, everything's scripted. And because one of the issues is sheep metabolize quicker than cattle. So you can't look at a bottle and say, oh, I'll just use the cattle dosage because you'll end up underdosing the animal. And that's very true on dewormers. Um, yep. And also true on antibiotics, and which is why you need that relationship and those scripts in place. And which but, can create uh, resistance, antibiotic resistance and, and parasite resistance. Exactly. Too. So. Yeah, we, we, we're definitely aware of that, but there is, we do use a higher powered antibiotic. It has an oil-based carrier and the sheep don't really react to it. And the oxytetracycline, you have to give such a large volume of liquid in the shot. We've never liked that. So I like a smaller yeah. dose. And so we, we've been using that more often. We do use, uh, we've been using that Zactran for foot rot, which is um, proven pretty beneficial. But once again, you got to use it with the script and you got to make sure you're very careful in doing it uh, responsibly. And, and yeah, I, I, I think it's really disease dependent. Um, we've seen some weird off stuff. We've seen some mycoplasma in lambs, which um, mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to give a certain antibiotic to get rid of that. LA won't necessarily knock it sideways. So, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about being responsible. Um, antibiotics are very expensive. I think that's one... Uh, misunderstanding when you talk about antibiotic usage. Um, it's definitely not in my interest as a producer to give everything antibiotics all the time. Yep. It, that, would, that would go very, I would go broke very fast if I did that. And so it's, we, we really try when we have a, a disease that's most likely a bacterial type disease, um, we actually look to the nutrition first 
as one of the main drivers to try to figure out what exactly is driving this um, illness. Obviously, the weather swings will create some pneumonia and things like that. Um, but um, and we'll use antibiotics when we need to. But a lot of times it's being aware of the surroundings, being aware of that nutrition in the environment and making those adaptions um, in anticipation of a potential outbreak, which would uh, which will prevent the use of antibiotics later on. Um, and that kind of so, comes back to that relationship with your vet, right? I mean, taking that yeah. kind of whole health view with a vet that understands commercial production can be really helpful in, in, uh, in thinking about how to manage those things. Yeah, uh, a flake of alfalfa is a tremendous medication. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, so what about vaccines? Same question kind of on vaccines. So our vaccine program um, has really been based on <clears throat> talking that through with our vet and, and kind of the the things we're most likely to see here. We started, when we started raising sheep commercially, we, we were using Covexin 8, which was an eight-way clostridial product. Um, and we went away from that because I was given lambs a 5cc shot as their initial dosage, which seemed like an awful lot of product. And so we've cut back and we use a, um, just a clostridial C&D and tetanus shot now um, we give that at weaning, and then we booster the lambs six weeks or so after that, booster the ewes annually and the rams annually, and we time our, our booster and the females such that they carry that immune response over into their colostrum, and, and it crosses the placenta and gives the lamb some immunity. We have in the past used foot vacs. Um, and I, I have a cautionary story about um, the way we give our shots with foot backs. Um, we were using dose syringes and I was flipping every U over to, to give the shot in the armpit. And I had a U kick the dose syringe out of my hand and it flipped through the air and landed needle down in the top of my foot through a rubber boot. So I immediately called my vet and she suggested that I go to the ER and they spent about three hours with me in the, in the ER and then decided I should call my vet. And they got a huge laugh out of the fact that I had injected myself with foot backs. Um, but that's another element of safety and, and safe administration. We don't use foot backs anymore. We've really dealt with that through our genetics and through our management. And so that kind of gets to that nutrition idea that you brought, brought up, I think, we're dealing with that through our mineral program and, and nutrition and the types of sheep that we run. We've had two outbreaks of blue tongue in 15 years. Um, and so we have not vaccinated for that. I suspect if I were a little closer to the Delta, I might. Um, but those are really the only things that we use based on where we are. And part of it for us is that, that the sheep operations here are reasonably isolated. It's a, it's a different system, I think, than where you're operating. Um, what, what kinds of, what do you guys use vaccine-wise, Ryan? Um, we don't really use very much. Um, part of it's because of availability. Um, the other part is cost. It gets the same argument as antibiotics where, you know, you start putting five, 10 bucks into a U, it adds up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, we use the we use the C and D on the use, um, and then and it's just a straight C and D. Um, we don't use a lot of those other the other um, in the eight ways. A lot of those don't really do anything for the sheep, so you really don't need to spend the money on them. And then we uh, have been using footbacks as it's been available. We do have a definite foot rot problem in our ground. Our ground is a real heavy clay. And so when you go through the winter, it doesn't really, it, it's really wet and, and um, is, is pretty supportive of a very strong foot rot bacteria yeah. population. So uh, we, do, we do struggle with that. Um, but um, we, do, we have been seeing some great success addressing our foot rot issue with genetic selection, targeted monitoring and genetic selection, which I think would be a great topic for the future is uh, addressing herd health through genetics. Um, so those are the two main ones. I did, uh, we haven't used blue tongue. Um, we really don't have that big of an issue here. We have had it um, when we run our ewes and lambs on alfalfa and we get them too far away from where we normally run them. Mm -hmm. And my grandpa's always told me that it's the strains are different in every part of the state. And so it's when you get them into a new strain is when they'll show that. And even when we've had it, we haven't had major losses like, like you'll see in some of the blue tongue infections in Southern California. That's a much different, um, it's the same disease, but it's a much different result down there versus up here for whatever reason, if it's the strain or if it's the climate or, or what it is. But I, our, We've had the experience where different strains will come through. And I think if the sheep have been exposed to a similar strain, they're not affected by it. Whereas if it's novel to them, we've had, we haven't had huge losses, but we've had a couple of waves go through. Yeah. I mean, more than anything, your face just kind of swells up and you give them some, some banamine or some kind of the, whatever you call it, the, the uh, anti-inflammatories. And yep. uh, then that usually helps them out because more than anything, they can't really drink or swallow well. And yep. so then they end up getting pneumonia and that's the actual cause of death. So if yep. we see it, we try to prevent the pneumonia through nutrition and environment. And, um, and that usually works pretty well. Yep. Um, do you use much dexamethasone on rare occasions um if if we've got something that's um that's got needs some pain relief and some anti-inflammatory we have on occasion up here had sheep either stung or bit by a snake and we will use dexamethasone in those cases um to address that that reaction we'll have you know you'll come out and you have a a sheep whose face is blown up because they've been bitten on the nose by a rattlesnake and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll use it then. How about you? Uh, we have a lot of beehives out where we're at. A lot of, they store their beehives in the summer and then there's no water in the hills in the summer. So they just cover the water troughs and the oh, sheep get yeah. thirsty and they just put their heads in and they'll get stung and then you'll get swollen up and we'll use some decks for that. But it's pretty, that's a really, really, it really helps for the anti-inflammatory stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you asked me about vaccines, though, um, and I wanted to ask about: uh, Do you use or have you um, research projects or anything about the um, ovine respiratory disease vaccines? I know they have a lot of them in Australia, New Zealand, and they use them all the time down there. And of course, in our cattle, we use BVD and IVRs and all that. And but in sheep, because of the FDA and the labeling expense, 
versus the return of selling into the sheep industry, we're not able to get those approved. What do you yeah. know about those kind of vaccines? Not as much as I should, to be honest. I, you know, I think if, if I looked at our operation and, and the operations I'm familiar with here in the foothills, respiratory infection is probably the number one economic issue in terms of disease with sheep primarily. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges for the industry is to, I think the industry collaborates well across political boundaries. So I think we've got good relationships in Australia and New Zealand and the UK and, and elsewhere. If we can get our governments and in particular our, our departments of agriculture and, and food and drug folks to understand the process perhaps that a vaccine goes through in Australia to be approved for use in sheep ought to meet U.S. requirements as well. I think I think there's lots of room for improvement in how those relationships work. And you've traveled to both Australia and New Zealand, is that right? Yeah. What what other kinds of things are they using there that would be of value here? I mean, and what, uh, what I think the main the main ones the vaccines uh, the access the accessibility to different respiratory vaccines are are tremendous down there. Um, it, whereas here we have none. I mean, yeah. literally none. And and it's probably for us it's the largest cause of death. I think. Yep. Is respiratory. Um, they do have some like uh, some pretty interesting or intriguing dewormers down there that we don't have access to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I wish there was a way we could collaborate better because it's the same manufacturers that are selling drugs in the U.S. that are selling drugs into Australia and New Zealand, and so there's no reason why they couldn't take that same exact product and just sell it here. They they would they wouldn't even need to manufacture it somewhere else. They already have yeah. the facility, they have the drugs. So it's not a whether, it's not an issue of research, it's an issue of licensing. And, uh, but then it's a difficult situation because sheep have always been a large commodity, but they really, they don't command the volume of sales in these support industries that they used to. And so they're, um, they're almost, a, they're too big to be a small commodity and too small to be a large commodity. And so they're stuck in this limbo phase yeah. where they can't get those small animal um, permissions from the, for the, for the drugs, but then they can't just, the drug companies can't justify um, getting the labeling. So that's definitely an issue. Um, and I wish they had some vaccines. Have you, um, have you ever experimented or know anybody that's done any work with uh, nasal gins and using nasal, nasal gins to uh, create that, interferon response to help with kind of some respiratory issues? I, I have not talked to anybody that's experimented with that. Um, you know, they're, they're, those are pretty widely used in the cattle side of things, are they not? Usually, yeah. Yeah. And I, it and seems to good, me that... Good success, too. It's really nice when you're receiving high-risk cattle out of an auction yard or something. You give them a nasal gin. Um, so and, nasal, and it, and it, it, it works really quickly, and it, and it helps the other um, vaccines work quickly before stuff really sets in. So I, you know, there's been some work done on those on different ways to administer some of those vaccines too, without using needles and, and those types of things. And I think all of that kind of technology um, would be helpful for our industry as well. I think the less invasive we can be in terms of administering some of those things, the better off we are. 
and then you're not jabbing a, a vial of foot vax into your foot when the U kicks the syringe too. But yeah, I didn't give myself a full dose, but I got some foot vax right there on my wrist. So feels feels good, doesn't it? Yeah, it swells up pretty gnarly. It was like the worst sprained ankle I ever had for about four yeah. hours. Yeah, it gets sore. Yeah. 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 Now, do you ever send anything into the uh, the lab there at Davis um, to get information back on something that's died? Yes, absolutely. So that's a good, um, yeah, that's a good segue back to that vet-client relationship. But um, yes, we do we do utilize, we're fortunate, we're right next to UC Davis, one of the top animal um, uh, schools in the in the world, really. I was in Fresno, I was in Australia, they had a list of all the top ag schools and they had UC Davis number one. And I was like, ah, I know where that is. But, um, <laughs> but no, we have a tremendous resource there. And there, there's a lot of labs around the, the nation. And if you have access to a, to a lab, I, I would definitely encourage you to use it. Um, you don't wanna bring everything in because that's expensive but it's really informative to bring stuff in um, kind of on a irregular basis. Just to, even if you know what's going on, it's good to have that confirmation um, every once in a while because you learn a ton about what's going on within your flock when you do those, yep. especially when you can break down and look at some of the mineral levels, some of the liver samples. Uh, you know, there's a lot of information about your herd in one of those animals that doesn't necessarily tied directly to cause of death. So it's really, really, really worthwhile. I absolutely agree. You know, we'll, if we get something unusual or we get a couple of deaths close together that we can't really figure out what's going on, we'll, we'll send one in. But even if we don't have that happen, we try to send um, one or two in a year, mostly to get the liver panels run. Um, you know, if we have something that, that we know why she died, We'll still send that in because it really helps us look at our mineral program in particular things like copper and zinc and selenium um, that are, are really important for the rest of the, the flock health. Um, that's, that's well worth the money. And I think in terms of, of small producers, one of the things to keep in mind with the lab at Davis is that it's, it's cheaper to dispose of a small animal there of sheep there than it is to call Sacramento rendering yep. and, and you get all this data back on your on your animal so yeah absolutely so um, antibiotics and vaccines are critical to sheep production we wish we had more vaccines but we don't but at the end of the day you need to have a good relationship with a vet and you need to build that relationship over time don't look at it as a Walmart for medicines. Look at it as a classroom for learning what you're doing and, and how to do what you do better. And, well, uh, and I think the, just to reiterate the point that you made, because I think that's hugely important, that, that we can either be in the mode of treating disease or we can be in the mode of looking at our whole production system and how we keep animals as healthy as possible. And I think a, a good vet helps you with that, but I think that also starts with your perspective on, on how we how we produce livestock. And, you know, their health is is important for us economically as as well as for their well-being. Yeah, I don't think you can ever stress enough how important herd health is to your economics. 
Yep. If you have struggling herd health, your your economics are going to struggle as well. And yep. and it's it's so important to tie those two things together because um, you're trying to run a successful livestock operation. That means you're raising successful livestock and you're creating a healthy environment for those animals. Because the end of the day, that's your job. That you know, if you're in the livestock business, your job is those animals. And if you lose sight of that for whatever reason. You need to sell and um, let somebody else in because it, you know it, it's a it's a duty to care for those things. Absolutely, stewardship has lots of meanings. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for now. Huh? I think we I think we covered lots of ground. I I always learn a lot, Ryan. Thank you. No, I appreciate the time and uh, yeah, it was a that was a good one. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. I set the bar nice and low for your next <laughs> next topic. So. Well, until next time, this is uh, Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Dan Macon in Auburn, California. And Ryan Mahoney out of Solano County. Stay cool. Yeah, you too. Take it easy, Dan. See you next week. Yeah, bye.